Well, that was great. I love these uh, adventures in the Bible things, don't you? Does everybody else like them? I think they're great. I think they're great. So we've got a slightly different way of um, presenting the message today. Because it's, um, it's a matter of, um, of great seriousness uh, that I'm going to be sharing today. We're going to look at a passage that begins to give us the path to the cross of Jesus. And of course, that means that in many ways, as we look at the scriptures, we're coming onto the most holy of ground. But we are, of course, looking at this passage in relation to the life that we live. And so that life that we live is a life where you and I need to find a way of connecting the scriptures to the experience that we have. Just in this last few weeks, reports have emerged from bona fide research agencies, government agencies, and other medical professionals that at least 40% of Americans have suffered some kind of mental trauma, mental illness, or specific episode of clinical depression during the pandemic, 40% of the population. In California, the official result is 44%. And so we're looking at a world today that is quite different from the one that we imagine that we would live in. And perhaps today we're holding down those emotions and feelings. Perhaps today we're feeling the, the transforming effect of praise and worship. Perhaps today, online or in-house, we're aware of the Lord's presence, soothing and ameliorating our fears. But the fact is, is that t- tomorrow morning comes again. We need to start the daily round And for so many of us, it is a time of deep trouble and sadness. Jesus came not only to save us, but to live our life so that he might save us completely. This was first articulated in the third century, very early on in the third century, by a great saint called Irenaeus, who lived in what is modern-day France. He died a martyr's death. He was the disciple of a man called Polycarp, who was the disciple of the Apostle John. He was directly connected to the fountainhead of the teaching of Jesus. And what Irenaeus said was that Jesus recapitulated the story of humanity. In other words, he relived the story of humanity and in reliving the story of humanity, redeemed the story of humanity and in redeeming the story of humanity, was able to restart the story of humanity as the second Adam, 
as the, as the one who was the progenitor of a new race of people, the children of the resurrection, the children of God. Today, as we look at this passage, we'll see one of the ways in which Jesus recapitulates our story and how it deeply connects with the experience that many of us have known in these, in these days. Luke chapter 22 and verse 39 reads like this. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The disciples were exhausted from sorrow. I wonder how many people can identify with that feeling right now. I wonder how many people feel that you get to the end of the day and you fall into bed and your mind's running and the next morning you wake up and you don't really feel refreshed in the way that you hoped you might and day after day follows like that. What is being experienced is something that I've introduced to you very briefly on a previous occasion, but I'd like to explain a little more deeply today because it bears very much on our understanding of what Jesus is doing in the garden. In the 1970s, during the Vietnam deployment, a psychiatrist and psychotherapist, Pauline Boss, began to notice a particular kind of grief that people were experiencing. It was a grief that had not been documented previously. It perhaps had been known, but was not really fully understood. It was called ambiguous loss. Perhaps a member of the family had been deployed to the front line. Perhaps their plane had gone down behind enemy lines and maybe they were a prisoner of war, maybe they were missing in action. That whole movement of MIA, POW began at that time. We know, we've seen the flags, we've, we've heard the stories. Ambiguous loss was identified because the families didn't know whether their loved ones were dead or alive. And so some days they lived as if their loved ones were alive, and some days they lived as if their loved ones were dead. And it was difficult for them to ever engage in the healing process of grief given to us by our loving Creator to heal our hearts. 
And so they were stuck. This ambiguous loss, this uncertainty, meant that they could never really get started in the internal mechanisms that would lead to their resolution, their life starting again and hope returning. And they found themselves spiraling around the events of ambiguous loss. What Pauline Boss noticed was that certain things happened. One, one was that that grief process articulated on numerous occasions, beginning with denial, moving into anger, anger into bargaining. If only this had happened or if only I'd done that, I, I wish I'd said this. Into depression and then finally acceptance and resolution. That process was halted, stunted, stalled. What she noticed was that that stalled process led to a particular kind of behavior, a behavior that continued pretty much unabated through the person's life until they got some sense of resolution. And she called it chronic hypervigilance. Maybe the person was hypervigilant about about the health of their children. Maybe the person was hypervigilant about the way they drove their car. Perhaps they were hypervigilant about their need to protect their property. Perhaps they were hypervigilant about the need to be clean in their homes and, and and to be constantly dealing with the issues of cleanliness, personal and family. This condition was not something that was an occasional occurrence. It was a common experience. And maybe the place where the person had halted in their journey of grief became the place of hypervigilance. Perhaps they began to deny over and over and over again that any of the circumstances that they feared had robbed them of their joy had actually ever happened. It's all a fake. It's not true. It's a conspiracy started by somebody else. The denial became a common feature of those suffering ambiguous loss because because they didn't know where to place themselves. Is anybody beginning to recognize any of the indicators here of our common experience? Will the world ever go back to what it was? Will, Will our nation ever recover from the body blow that it suffered? Will, will rich and poor ever be able to look at the path of peace and prosperity again? Or will it never be resolved? Some deny 
the existence of the problem in the first place. Some are trapped on the path of grief in anger. It's surprising, isn't it? You find yourself angry that you've forgotten your mask back in the car and you've got to walk back to the car and get the mask and then you grumpily walk across the parking lot to the CVS and all you're doing is putting on something that is a face covering and, and now it becomes the issue of the day. The object of your anger. And the people around you suffer from that feeling of anger. You see, it's an irrational emotion looking for a reason to be there. That's the process of grief. Grief is not a rational process. Grief is a healing process. And anger emerges so that it can find something to attach to so that you can bring it to a place of resolution. But if we get stuck... Because the loss is ambiguous. We, we don't know whether it's going to end. We don't know whether we're at the beginning. We don't know whether we're in the middle. What's going to happen? It's hard to get out of the place on the journey of grief to which you become attached and on which you become stuck. Maybe it's the bargaining. If only we'd done this, or I wish we'd done that. I, I, I wish we'd sorted out that situation before all of this had started. Perhaps it's just simply depression. Crushed by the weight of it. Unemployment, economic loss, relational breakdown has been something that you've experienced in this time and, and it's been terrible. And the crushing weight of it seems to squeeze the life out of you. Maybe for a few, you've reached the place of acceptance. Maybe the world won't change, but God's in his heaven. And he most certainly won't change. Jesus has walked this very path. Jesus incarnate as a human being has carried all our sins, but as that beautiful old hymn says, he's carried all our sorrows and cares. He's carried all of them. And there in the garden, he reveals to us how he has carried those cares, how he has carried those sorrows, how he has, how he has carried those burdens. And there's a little clue for us as to his objective in doing the very thing that he did in the garden. Jesus goes through the stages of grief. He's, he's no doubt got past the stage of denial and anger and now he's at the bargaining stage of, of talking to his father. He's been, of course, setting his face towards Jerusalem 
from the mid part of his ministry and he's been focused on what it is that he must do there. But now, as he reaches the very threshold of crucifixion and death, the bargaining, the, the normal thing of human existence emerges. Father, you could take this cup away from me. Is it possible, Father, that we could do this another way? I feel the loss already. I can, I can feel the touch already of the terror, of the pain, the weight of human sin. Is there another way? And in the midst of this just normal human need to set in place what it is that's happening, Jesus is crushed by the experience. Gethsemane, Gethsemane is still there to this day. It's an olive grove. In the Bible, it's called a garden. We'll come to that in a moment. But Gethsemane is a word used in the popular language of the day that refers to what happened in that location. And what it is that happened in that location was the production of olive oil. And the way that olive oil was produced then as it is now is that the olives are shaken from the trees and put into a large bath, often once they've been cut up and chopped up. But nevertheless, the fruit of the olive is put into a large bath. And then in the time of Jesus, and very often still to this day, a three-stage process of pressing takes place. The first stage is the oil that is released just by the weight of the fruits themselves, by gravity itself. This, this first rendering, the virgin oil, is used for the most delicate of things. Then, after that, there is a large rock put into the bath. And the oil is squeezed from the husk that oil is used for cooking, is used for the daily culinary events of a Jewish household. And then finally, perhaps with even greater pressure, the last pressing, often with some of the fruit of the olive included in the oil and so it's not as good as the others is used perhaps for lamps and other things. We're told in the Gospels that Jesus prayed three times, three pressings in the place of crushing Gethsemane. Jesus knew what it was like to be crushed by the weight by the depressive weight of sadness. I know some of you 
have felt that. I've spoken to many of you of your, of your struggles during this time. Some of you are still at the point of denial. Others of you just wish that it would go away and I'd stop talking about it right now. But the truth is, is that we are a body. We're a people, we're a congregation and we need to stand with one another in these things. There are those who are being crushed right now. And it makes a difference that Jesus went through it for us. It makes a difference. And I'll explain that in a moment. But just allow this reality to come home to you. Where have you experienced this ambiguous loss? Where have you felt this, this process of being trapped in grief? Do you dread the next mandate, the possibility of a lockdown? Do you, do you worry that the vaccine won't come out soon and if it does, it won't work? Do you have this feeling that, that something's happening that is beyond your control that you can't deal with and you can't quite grasp what it is that you need to do to deal with it, like the soap in the bath, it always eludes your grasp. In all of the Gospels, Gethsemane is present within the narrative. And in many of those Gospels, there is another clue, particularly in John's Gospel, Beginning of chapter 18, we see Jesus having prayed the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, coming to Gethsemane. And there John tells us that it is a garden. It is a garden. John also tells us, as Jesus rises from the dead, that he's been laid in a grave in a garden. At the end of chapter 19, Jesus died. He's been taken down from the cross. And it says, there was a garden there and a freshly cut grave where they laid the body of Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, and the first person to speak to him was Mary Magdalene. She looked at him and she saw a gardener. Isn't that interesting? The garden, which at the very beginning of the story of the Bible is the place where you and I inhabit the presence of God. The garden. There was a place where once we all lived in joy and in harmony and in the blessed presence of God and we've lost that garden. 
and we don't know whether we're going to get it back again. But there's this thing in us that causes us to hope for a better world. There's this thing in us that causes us to grieve over a broken world. There's this thing in us, this ambiguous loss of the garden that causes us to know that our hearts are scarred by an ancient wound. And we hope that one day healing will come for us and for everybody else. And in the last book of the Bible, addressing the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, to those who overcome, I will give a place in the paradise of God. Paradise? Paradise is the word taken from the ancient Near East and the languages of the ancient Near East to refer to the the walled garden of the king. The walled garden of the king is called paradise. In Luke, in chapter 23, verse 45, maybe verse 43, round about there, Jesus is dying on the cross and he has two thieves, one on either side. One berates him speaks evilly to him. But another, knowing that this is something for which he's being punished justly, he's a violent criminal, that was the penalty for such crimes in his day. But Jesus had done nothing wrong and something in him stirred and he looked at Jesus and the sign above his head that said, here is the king of the Jews. And he said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Luke records this this amazing conversation between the dying Jesus and the dying thief. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in the walled garden of the king. You'll be with me in the walled garden of the king. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I I don't know whether this is true. It's just a poetic insight for me. As Jesus bows in the Garden of Gethsemane, I believe that he opened the path for us to enter the Garden again. Because in his surrender there in the Garden, he ensured the victory. And in his submission there in the Garden, He ensured authority over 
our enemies of death and sin and Satan and opened the way to the power of the resurrection. In the garden, Jesus opened the way for us to enter the garden again. And I don't know whether this is right or not. It's a speculation on my part. But I think about the angel that came to minister. I think about that angel who was sent to minister to Jesus as his blood mixed with his sweat in the anguish of his soul. Was it the angel who had been assigned to the gate of Eden? Was it the angel who the father said, you can put down the flaming sword because my son most certainly will lead the very first sinner across this threshold again. I don't know whether that's true. We'll find out in heaven, won't we? But here's the deep and most significant truth. Jesus has walked your path for you. And because he's walked your path for you, he has opened the way to glory for you. The obstacle was taken down, the flaming sword was removed, the angel stood down, stepped back. And the very first one to enter the walled garden of the king was a violent criminal. A man who had no theological training at all, barely understood anything of what Jesus offered, and yet he was saved by grace. And that grace so revealed to us in the life in the death of Jesus is the means by which today you have access to the garden. Today you have access to the paradise of God. Today. And how do I know that? Because Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come and your will revealed in heaven. Let it be revealed here on earth today. Now, everything can change. Jesus opened the door in Gethsemane. He crossed the threshold on Calvary and began a new humanity in the garden of the resurrection. And you and I get to be part of it. You and I get to be invited into it. You and I 
are enthusiastically welcomed by Jesus. And when, and when we come and stand with Jesus in awe and recognition of what it is that he's done, we notice that something begins to change. We, we notice that the sadness now is undergirded with joy. Because the joy is deeper than the sadness because it'll last longer than the sadness. Just think of that. Just think of that. Underneath the sadness, there's a joy that lasts longer than the sadness. It's more important than the sadness. God loves you. And he's very close to the brokenhearted. But because of what Jesus has achieved, he releases to us an unfathomable joy. Underneath the anxiety that surrounds our life, that besets us every day, is a peace that is deeper than the anxiety because it lasts longer than the anxiety. Isn't that amazing? It's a peace that we can't understand. It's a joy unspeakable. It's a peace beyond our knowing. But it's a gift from Jesus won for us on the path to Calvary that began right here in Gethsemane. Right there in Gethsemane, Jesus says to you unequivocally, I know you and I know what you're going through and I've walked this path on your behalf so that in the midst of this terror, in the midst of this besetting sadness, there is joy unspeakable and peace that passes understanding. And if in this time, like in so many other times, you found yourself failing, there is a forgiveness that's deeper than sin. There's a forgiveness that's deeper than any sin. Any bad thought you've had, any, any, any bitter root that you've allowed to grow up, anything in your life that you would know stands in the category of sin, there is a forgiveness that's deeper than it. And it's amazing, isn't it? And it changes everything. So we may be suffering ambiguous loss, but we have a certain hope. Is anyone prepared to say hallelujah? We may have we may have an uncertain world, but we have a solid salvation. And that solid salvation changes everything. And it changes the way that we engage with this world. And it changes the way that people understand us living. Because they may look at us, and as the Apostle Peter says, they may ask you, to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. The election may go wrong 
for you. The world may continue to collapse into chaos for you. But Jesus has done something that has changed it all for you. And people will want to know why. And, Paul, and Peter says, when you're asked to give a reason for the hope within you, be ready. Be ready to say, I'm sad, but there's a joy that's deeper than my sadness. I'm a sinner, but there's a forgiveness that's deeper than my sin. I'm anxious just like you. But there's a peace that passes understanding. Amen. Amen. Now at the end of the service we will open the prayer room, the Zoom room. We encourage you to be part of that. Chad's going to be leading that. We'd encourage you to, um, to get the link there. You may need to refresh your page. And here in-house... We'll be praying over here in the pews that have been set aside for the purposes of prayer. Please, I know that these things are very often private and you don't want anyone to pry. No one's going to be walking with boots around in your inner world. They'll simply pray for peace and blessing. But if you need that today, then come and pray with the prayer team come and pray in the zoom room or here in-house but before we get there let's pray together it may be that it's appropriate for you to stand as we pray let's do that and if you're doing that online then feel free to stand where you are maybe not if you're in the car <laughs> Jesus we stand in your presence because we honor you, Lord. We honor you, Lord, that you walked our path for us. That when you became a man, you chose to walk our path for us and to embrace every sorrow along the way. Thank you, Jesus, that you carry our sin and you carry our sorrow. And this day, Lord, we pray for those who are struggling at this time. We pray, Lord, most for those who struggle most. We ask you, Lord, that they would know that there's a joy below the sadness, a peace beneath the anxiety, a forgiveness deeper than the sin. And Lord, this day, we pray for each one of us that hope your hope would rise in our hearts and that we would live a different life and that others would see it. And we pray, Lord, that hope would come to this nation because of it. And we pray this, Jesus, for your glory, because you are the glorious one who gave your life for us, who rose again for us, who ascended into heaven for us and is coming again for us. We thank you, Lord, and we give you glory in your name. Amen.